My Car Guru, episode 188. Okay, welcome to this edition of My Car Guru. I've been thinking this morning about something, and I just wanted to share it with you and see how you feel about it. The only way I, f- I know how you feel is if you email me or message me on my phone. So I'm going to give you those contact numbers again for the car guru. Uh, the num- phone number is 423-552-2020, where you can send me a text message there, if you don't mind. And then the uh, email is Lenny, L-E-N-N-I-E, Lawson2020 at gmail.com. So there you go. So what was I thinking about? I was thinking about, is there any single thing that I know more about as far as width and depth as I do the car business. And I really couldn't think of anything that's anywhere close, not, not only the car business, but cars, the auto industry, and which includes cars and history and all that stuff. That's why I have a show called The Car Guru. But I'm just trying to think, okay, is there anything else? I mean, I have a lot of general knowledge about a lot of different things. You know, I went to University of Tennessee. I'm a graduate of that, which... Doesn't mean a whole lot. I learned a whole lot more uh, my first year of being out of college than I learned in four years of being in college. And I guess that's probably true for a lot of people, unless you're in some type of a field like engineering or architecture or medicine or something like that. Just general business, I guess you can learn a lot. I mean, I, you know, that's, I'm probably shortchanging the experience a little bit, but I think most of you understand or know what I mean as far as work experience in your field versus uh, just the educational part of it. Sometimes you tend to goof off too much in the educational part. I didn't, not too much. A lot, but maybe not too much. So I think about photography. You know, I know a lot about photography. Not a, not as much as I know about the car business, though. Um, you know, music. I'm, I play the guitar and the mandolin and the, you know some piano and stuff like that. So I know a little bit. I'm very shallow on everything except the guitar. Um. I'm trying to think of anything else that I really know a whole lot about, and there's not that much. What about you? Uh, do you have any secondary attributes? That's what I'm talking about here. What are our attributes that we have that make us functional in our lives? You know, I've, I've been involved my entire life in education, not only as a student, but as a, not a school teacher, but a teacher of of people who get into my industry. I, uh, you know, my primary job as a car dealer for many years, you know, as the both the general manager, general sales manager, and the dealer at all at one time was to educate people, you know, to try to teach them first how to do their job and then how to do their job well over a long period of time. Uh, there's so many things that don't come natural to people when it comes to, to uh, the car business or any business. Um, I think genuine uh, high quality level of customer service I don't think that's that comes natural to most people they don't really understand the whole concept of uh, being a servant you know we grow up wanting to be served you know we expect this or that from our parents and our friends and and um, you know it, it's it's usually coming towards us where People have a hard time transitioning, don't you think, to where they're they're actually serving others, where they can even get to the point where they, they can take abuse from other people and still 
keep the goal in mind of serving them. That's tough. But that was a part of, of my overall job. You know, when you have a, a job like mine, and when it comes to a, kind of a CEO of a, of a company, a small company, 60 employees, I mean, it's not like being the CEO of Ford or General Motors or something like that, obviously. Um, but it is similar in, in a lot of ways. Uh, even those guys don't manage more than, you know, probably a handful of people. Uh, are their primary uh, contacts in the organization, and then they rely on those people to uh, manage their people. You know, and it just it, you look at any organizational structure, that's what you're going to see. And all of those people have different levels of expertise in certain business functions. You know, you get your finance people, your accounting people, your uh, marketing people, your product people. You know, when I went to the Ford meeting in Las Vegas, uh, had a parade of folks that got up on the stage talked about their area of expertise and what their primary focus was. And that's kind of the job of the CEO, to help the team to, uh, figure out what the overall strategy is and then put the right people in the right places to do the things that need to get done. Um, and so all these people have different attributes. But, you know, businesses are the same. Uh, all businesses do not have the same type of focus. And they're not all good at the same things. That's why Walmart is quite different from Target. You may have never thought about that. You may prefer to shop at Walmart because of their diversity of product and their focus on low price, as opposed to Target, whose um, primary focus is not price. You know, they do have, they do focus on high product quality and they focus on uh, the experience, you know, as far as the way the store looks and the way things are laid out. It's just, I don't know, can you see a difference between the two stores when you walk in? I mean, do you feel like you're in a little higher quality, uh, not luxurious because even Target is not that way, but it's just, a, I don't know, it's, it's a step up in experience in my mind. Um, there's, a, there's a wonderful book, and I've talked about this book over the years. It's called The Myth of Excellence. And you know, it talks about the fact that there are basically five attributes that businesses in general have to focus on, and those are price, service, product, access, and experience. And, you know, when you look at uh, different companies, for example, okay, let's do another example. Uh, Dollar General versus Walmart. Now, does Dollar General have the breadth of product that Walmart has? No, they don't. But can is uh, Dollar General a lot easier to get to than Walmart? Absolutely. I mean, in Greene County alone, I bet there are fifteen Dollar Generals. You know, strategically located around our massive county, the second largest county in the state of Tennessee by area, not by population. So you know, they're not. They can't. They figured out a long time ago. They don't go head to head against Walmart. They can't. They don't have the size and the power, the financial power, but they certainly do have one thing that they can do, and they can put a Dollar General store right near your house. Uh, Ford was talking about that the other day when they were talking about their whole electrification strategy. Uh, Ford understands that the only way people are going to uh, be interested in buying an electric car is that, is that if when they travel, they can find a charging station. You know, that charging 
will be less of a threat than it is now, that it is equivalent to, you know, stopping and, and filling up with a tank of gas, okay? I don't know when that's going to happen. It's going to happen. I mean, especially when they move over to solid-state batteries, when they get to that point, then uh, you will be able to charge much faster and stay on the road much longer. But we're not there yet. You know, we're still using the lithium-ion batteries. But Ford understands that in order for their big strategy to work, and they're betting $50 billion on this strategy by building all these plants, you know, the ones out in West Tennessee and the battery plant, the big manufacturing plant where they're going to build the F-150 Lightning truck and then another huge battery plant up in Kentucky, uh, $50 billion that they're investing. Well, that's money down a big black hole if the charging infrastructure isn't there. So they're requiring their dealers, if they want to be EV dealers, they've, which includes me, uh, if, you, if you want to sell EVs, you've got to pony up. And you've got to put a DC fast charger on your lot, at least one. And I've done a little bit of research, and we're looking at between two hundred fifty thousand and half a million dollars to do that one charger. Is that not crazy? Um, but if you want to be a elite dealer, which is we can sell as many as uh, as you can get, which you're limited on the other plan to only twenty five in a year. If you want to be a, a full EV dealer, which they call uh, certified elite then you have to put up three chargers. And they're saying that's between a million and a million two. Now that's, you know, it's going to be a long time before we would get any kind of return on that investment. Uh, We don't know exactly what the uh, revenue sharing situation will be. We will be able to charge for the power, obviously. I hope hope so. No, we will. And uh, you'll be able to use your Ford Pass app to charge on the credit card that you have installed in that, or if you're just, you know, if you're driving a, you know, a electrified Hyundai, you'll be able to pull up and charge as well. So, you know, Ford is trying to do what Dollar General did. They're trying to improve access so that they can move more product. And speaking of product, when you look at, when you look at price, service, product, experience, and access, uh, just focusing on Price. Who would you perceive to be the lowest pro- uh, lowest price provider of automobiles in this country? You know, the first thing that pops into my mind is Hyundai and Kia. Now they used to be a whole lot uh, cheaper. I mean, there was a huge difference between a uh, I don't know Hyundai Accent and a, a Mazda three or something like that. There was a you know the the quality wasn't there either. But see, they've done a great job leveling the field. Matter of fact. Kia and Hyundai are many times at the near at or near the top of the JD uh, Power Quality uh, Survey. So they've done a great job. I personally don't think about them being a great product provider. On the other hand, you know I look at BMW. You know they used to. I mean their primary attribute was product, just like Mercedes Benz, Lexus. Uh, now di- did. Uh, BMW and Mercedes-Benz and Lexus, were they perceived to be the uh, low-price alternative? Heck no. You know, when you think about price, maybe you think about Chevrolet, maybe Ford. Used to be maybe Dodge. Remember when there was a Plymouth? Um, Maybe Hyundai, Kia, Mitsubishi. I don't know. Um, So many of them uh, tout their product as being superior to everybody else's, but I think the general public... Uh, has the perception that Toyota has the the best product quality. Uh, 
uh, still, even though that, that playing field is level now. Um, I feel just as comfortable driving anywhere in a, in a product from, made by Chevrolet as I do a, something made by Toyota. But the average consumer kind of puts Toyota and Lexus on a pedestal. They do that with Honda as well. You know, and that reputation was earned in the, in the uh, late 70s and early 80s, and they just built upon that. Um, and so uh, that is their primary attribute. They, ex- they excel at that. But the whole theory of this book, uh, The Myth of Excellence, is that, you know, you can't be fantastically good at everything. Uh, you can't be the, the best perceived and, in reality, price, service, product, experience, and access. It's just too much for a company to do. But, but their position is the most successful companies focus on one primary attribute as their primary focus, and that's what they want to be known for. And then there's one right below it that is their secondary attribute. And then everything else has to be at least average or above you know, in order to be successful. And, um, you know, you take a company, well, we were talking about Dollar General, for example. So their primary attribute is access. Their secondary attribute is price. Um, you know, they, they don't really talk about product. They probably, probably, I don't know, I don't shop there, but they probably have a lot of generic brands, but they do have a lot of mainline brands as well. Um, you know, their people are probably really nice. They don't have a big staff. It's not about... You know, they, they hang at the cash register. You don't have those people circulating throughout the store to give you advice on, you know, Rice Krispies or um, whether you do Rice Krispies or, or mini-wheats. Uh, but there are other stores that really engage with you. I mean, look at that. Look at, uh, I don't know, Dollar General or some like Kroger versus Fresh Market. I mean, what is Kroger may be focused primarily on price with uh, product as a secondary attribute, whereas Fresh Market... They don't give a rip about price. Everything's expensive. They know if you shop there, money is probably not an object. They focus on product and experience. Because, I mean, I remember the first time I walked into a fresh market. I said, man, this place is pretty. You know, the the decor, just the way they had the fruit all stacked up and laid out, free coffee. The first thing that you see when you walk in, you know, it's not boxes and Stuff like that, like Aldi store, it is flowers. And then you go to the free coffee, and then you get to the, uh, the rest of the, the grocery store. It's, it's hard to even call it a grocery store. It's like a living room with food in it. Um, but that's the way they want it to be. It feels good to shop there. And so you can get that from an online experience, too, and I'll talk about that here in just a minute. Okay, so the job of the CEO is to kind of, he is not rowing the boat. He's not setting the sails. He's got his hand on the wheel that determines the direction of the company. And if he doesn't steer good with in the sailboat analogy, then uh, the sails are not going to fill with air and move the boat along at a good rate of speed. Uh, they're just going to sit there and flap. There's a lot of companies that do that. I mean, Kmart did that. Um, There's companies like in the auto industry. Uh, Mitsubishi did that. I mean, they struggled. They're here still, but, man, they almost got kicked off out of the United States, not because of any illegality. They just destroyed the brand, and they had to recover. 
Now, they didn't hurt themselves as bad as, as badly in other countries. Mitsubishi was still pretty strong worldwide, and that's what kept the company afloat. But when they came out with that zero 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 program, zero down, zero um, interest, and no payments for a year, you know that's pretty desperate. When you're doing that, you're certainly focusing on price. You're on, you're not focusing on product, and their product portfolio was weak, and that's why they had to do it. You know, Mitsubishi was trying to appeal to Honda buyers and Toyota buyers. And, you know, they became the, uh, the company that you went to when you had horrible credit and you didn't have any money because you could buy a Mitsubishi Eclipse with no money down and not have to make a payment for a year. You know what that did to Mitsubishi? That almost put them out of business. Um, imagine having a car get repoed after somebody's had it for a year, probably put 30,000 miles on it and not made a payment. I mean, that is, uh, and I was a Mitsubishi dealer at the time, but that, I ended up giving up the franchise because they'd killed it. They killed the franchise because they, they could, they didn't know who they were and they didn't clearly define their product. Ford is not making that mistake. Ford has never made that big, that big of a mistake, nor has General Motors or Toyota or Honda or any of those main companies. They've made a lot of errors, but when you have the massive size of a company like GM, most of the time you can recover, and if you can't, you just, you know, go bankrupt and, and let the government bail you out. You know, Ford didn't do that. A lot of people said, well, you know, that's why I want to buy a Ford. What they don't realize is that Ford would have done that, would have been forced to do that. If a guy named Alan Mulally hadn't come in from Boeing and, and read the tea leaves and said, this company's going out of business if we don't borrow a bunch of money. So they borrowed, I think it was $32 billion dollars before the credit markets freeze, no, got frozen, you know, around the Great Recession back in, you know, 2008. He came in in 2007, and, um, you know, he said, this, this is not sustainable. You know, the product portfolio was not good. Uh, they were burning cash a lot faster than they were generating it. And he said, we've got to borrow money or we're not going to survive. You know, they, he had already heard rumors that the housing market was going to collapse. So he jumped on it. The, the problem with Rick Wagner at, at General Motors, who was the CEO at the time, and he, he just ignored the, the tea leaves. He didn't want to hear it. I mean, he was an ingrained GM car guy. Same thing happened with the Chrysler Corporation, though. Uh, they just did not uh, – they had too many industry – car industry people on their board of directors and in their – their executive suite, that they were just blind to it. They, they thought that the industry could survive when, you know, you get this outsider comes in. He said, no, you're not going to survive. So that's why Ford didn't take the bailout money, didn't have to. So, you know, a company even, and you can push this all the way down to a mom and pop store. You know, they have to know what, what they're competing with. I mean, what basis they're competing on. Is it price? Is it product? If it's, is it service? Is it access? Is it experience? You know, I, I bring pals up a lot, you know, as a little fast food place. And most people, you know, if you're listening to this podcast in Tacoma, Washington, then you don't know what I'm talking about. But it's a fast food place that started in Kingsport, Tennessee. And it became world famous when uh, Pal Barger, who founded Pals, won the uh, prestigious award, the most prestigious award uh, that the federal government bestows upon um, – private business, and that's the Malcolm Baldridge Award. 
at the time, I don't know how many stores they had, maybe 16, 17. I don't know how many they have now, probably in the 30s. But I, I know this. Um, they developed their own training center, and large companies like uh, not McDonald's and, and, and Burger King and stuff like it. Bur- Burger King probably should, but um, uh, A&W Root Beer, for example, they're the number two fast food franchise in Canada. And uh, at the time, they had uh, when I went through this uh, training school with, at Pals, yeah, I'm a car dealer, and I went through a training school at Pals. And so did uh, the uh, managers of all of the 650 A&W root beer stores in Canada came to Kingsport, Tennessee to go through their training to learn how to run a lean, mean profit machine. And that's exactly what PALS is. PALS understood that they had to, to compete on, um, on price, but, you know, consistent, high-quality product and a great experience. It's fast. It's faster than anybody else as far as drive-throughs. The people are nicer. Uh, no offense, but they do a better job hiring and training their people than anybody else does. Their facilities are spotless, and you can't eat in. It is a drive-through only, and they, they have figured out how to turn that into a mean, lean profit machine that everybody loves. In, in this part of Tennessee, and I have no doubt that at some point in the future, it will become a uh, national franchise. And when it does, somebody's going to rake it in. All right, I'll take my last break. I'll be back here in just a minute. I take that back. Pals is already raking it in. But we all love Pals, and, and it's because people like uh, Pal Barger and, and uh, uh, Tom Crosby, who's the CEO, and um, that they figured out that... Uh, they, they have to define who they are, and they had to define who they are in relationship to who everybody else is and what they're doing. And you find that niche that works for you and makes a big difference. Car dealers do this as well. I've done this over my entire career. What can I do to stand out? What attribute am I as a car dealer going to jump on um, when all the dealers out there are really playing on a level f- uh, playing field as far as price is concerned. Now, when you hear the advertising, you don't think they are. They sound like, oh, we got the lowest prices. They don't. You know, that's just a pitch. And it won't be long, folks, before um, everything is online. It's going to be like um, Tesla, and you order your vehicle, and there'll be no, no negotiation. Now, there's a certain, a large percent of the population that says, well, I can't wait for that. That takes the stress off. But, big but to that, that you're always going to have trade-ins. And you may have a fixed price on the, you know, the Chevy Silverado that you're buying online. But, you know, your trade-in, what that's worth is going to be a matter of opinion. And that opinion can vary from one dealership to the next. So we're still not going to get away from that. But I think one of the main hang-ups that most people have about buying cars, and that's the back-and-forth negotiation thing, that's going to go away. So dealerships are going to have to figure out a way to compete. Now, at Gateway, we're, we're focused on service and experience. I mean, we can't be everywhere. I can't open a dealership up, you know, in, in um, Cincinnati or St. Louis. Well, I could. I could buy a dealership there. But, you know, the culture of Gateway, of my dealership, is only here. You know, it's, it's based on who I have here and the, the, um, the values and stuff that I am able to instill in the people that work for me. Sometimes that is translatable, and sometimes it's not. Uh, a lot of companies have proven that it can be. You know, if you have very strong leadership and you train your people well and you, 
do a great job. But that's all part that something has to fit within this framework in order for a business to be successful. So I realize this show isn't totally about cars, but it is about business and car business. And sometimes we will do that on My Car Guru. And I appreciate you listening, and we'll see you next time.